and welcome to the Field Notes podcast from Arosha. I'm Bryony Loveless and I'm a researcher with Arosha. And I'm Peter Harris and I've been with Arosha from the beginning when we established a field study centre and bird observatory in the south of Portugal in 1983. Now, we all know that the rapid thinning of life on Earth and the climate crisis can often feel overwhelming. So it's our hope that in this podcast you'll hear some remarkable and original perspectives from people we know who are working to care for creation around the world. If we look around, there are so much gloom uh, that bring a lot of discouragement. But at the same time, uh, the numerous challenges that we see around these challenges also tend to be a source of encouragement hello and welcome back to the field notes podcast today we had the pleasure of interviewing seth apia kubi who to spoke to us about a lot of different things, but in particular about the Atiwa campaign and his role in Arusha, Ghana. Um, Peter, maybe you could tell me a bit about Seth's background for those who haven't met him before. Yes, he's one of our most prominent Arusha leaders, I would say, around the world and very widely known outside Ghana as well because of the Atiwa campaign, which is so important. This is a big forest with a very important role to play, as he explains, not least as it is responsible for providing drinking water for millions of people living in Accra and under an acute threat from bauxite mm. mining. But what was interesting to me, I don't know about you, was how he has come into conservation in the first place. Mm, yeah, he speaks a lot at the beginning about how he doesn't have a kind of typical conservation background and actually came from being a accountant. So yeah, it's very interesting. I think for people like like myself who haven't got that kind of environmental training behind them. And accounting's a critical part of the argument for the forest, of course, because they did a major study on the economics of the biodiversity of that forest, which demonstrated clearly that for all the millions of short-term benefit that a few people might get out of mining its bauxite, mm. the loss of the millions of benefits millions of dollars of benefits that mm. it provides to the country and to ordinary Ghanaians is, is far greater. So mm. ironically, he's found himself wonderfully positioned, as he explained, for, for leading the work there. And conservation is a very wide camp. There are so many skills needed as we try to figure out how to live on this earth without wrecking it and indeed regeneratively. Mm. And at the end of the, or towards the end of the podcast, we talk about ecosystem services, which is a term that some people who are listening might not have heard of before. Some of you may have. Do you want to try and explain to those people who maybe don't know what ecosystem services yes, is? And, and some who are listening may stop listening now when we, when we use the term, because it has been highly controversial and continues to be. But essentially, um, in its nuanced form that we understand it, uh, within Arosha, certainly, it's a way of looking at how, as well as understanding the cultural and even spiritual value of nature, you can start to put some approximate numbers on what nature does for people. Mm -hmm. And so you can think of the value of pollinators, you can think of the value of clean water, 
You can think of many ways in which nature sustains us on the earth. And it is possible to put some kinds of numbers on that to counter the kind of numbers that are often given to justify despoiling nature. Mm. But it is a controversial topic. And my friends who call themselves intrinsics, that's to say they see an intrinsic value in nature and no need to justify it beyond that, will by now be spitting into their podcasting vehicles. Well, he said partway through that I think it's something like, we should not believe that nature is only good when we get value from it, um, which hopefully is not too controversial to those who are listening. No. Um, yeah. And the final thing to say about this episode is that uh, we speak to Seth a little bit about um, the Ghanaian church and he has shared with us a a statistic, which is that 70% of Ghanaians identify as Christians. And of that 70%, around 70 to 80% attend church every Sunday, which is massive, isn't it? That's, you know, if the, there was teaching or, and I know there is already, but if there was more teaching in the church around um, caring for the planet, that could have a huge reach. Absolutely. And in fact, where biodiversity is concentrated in the global South Particularly, that is often the case. And I think it's one of the things that has been difficult for the contemporary conservation movement, which was born out of the highly secular West, to come to terms with, because this is not just a science argument. This is an argument about what people believe and why. Mm. And therefore, it's critically important that Christians globally understand that at the heart of their faith, is a calling to care for God's creation. And it can have a dramatic effect on the landscape. And so the work of Aroshagana, which is often highly technical, extends to a big outreach program to this very influential group in Ghanaian society, as it does in many other countries. Mm. And on that note, we'll stop talking. And well, we'll no, you-, you, you can't stop before you talk about the owl, Bryony. I mean, oh. this... Oh, goodness. We Don't forgot you the read owl. the Times? Don't no. I, oh, I do read the Times, but actually my dad told me about this owl um, and yes. I, I had to look up and uh, yeah, Google a bit more about it. Tell us about the owl, Peter. Yes. So Shelley's eagle owl, which has not been seen in the wild for 150 years, has just been refound in this forest. And this is not some, uh, with apologies to Simon Stewart, obscure amphibian. This is Shelley's eagle owl. It's completely astonishing. And uh, if anything else was going to show how extraordinarily important forests like Atewa are, this would do it. Somebody compared what we're doing on earth to burning a library without reading the books. Mm. And this is like burning the library without seeing a massive version of some extraordinarily important tome sitting right in front of you. Mm. So it's great news. And it's put Atewa in the news once again and renewed calls for its protection from mining and to become a national park. So it's a good time to be talking to Seth. Here we go. Let's jump in. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Field Notes podcast. Uh, to kick us off, it would be wonderful to hear a bit about your background and how you came to be interested in conservation. Yeah, I always feel um, embarrassed when I talk about my background and then what what I do. 
uh, now, um, but I give my full time too. So um, I'm a I'm a full finance person. Uh, I'm a chartered accountant. Um, I was, uh, you know, my earlier studies were, were in accounting and economics, um, and I had my PhD. Um, in finance, uh, looking at liquidity risk for banks. Uh, and I've worked in accountancy. I've worked in banking. So that's, that's my, uh, my background. Um, but I, I didn't change anything and I didn't have any difficulty in uh, transitioning to work in conservation as I do, do now. Um, I have been confident. Uh, with 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 myself, and I've been humble to study and to learn uh, from the team I work with, and um, also across the opportunities that I have to serve on committees and to attend meetings and dialogue and conferences. Um, but more importantly, to be on the ground with the community people, and then looking at the issues, and then encouraging and mobilizing them. Onto, I think that is what um, has has built my capacity. I would imagine for two reasons. I mean, you're, what you've just said raises so many interesting questions for me, but uh, which I want to ask you. One one would be that uh, the the particular things you've got involved with have actually intersected a lot with your financial and accounting thinking, haven't they? Because they've they've had to do with valuing the Atiwa forest, this incredibly important ecosystem, and, and looking at ways of valuing that, which in your context in Ghana, have to take account of economics, have to take account of the well-being of, of all the communities. So presumably, have you found your economics background has actually been a bonus. And if you'd had a more classical conservation training in biology or environmental sciences, you might not have been equipped in the same way. No, the, the more I, I'm involved in conservation um, and the more the uh, dynamics of uh, global uh, you know, conservation pathway itself developed, the more I see my background's relevance in conservation. And maybe Peter's not even a bonus, but it becomes a, a main, you know, advantage and the background that I need. You may, you know, we're talking about, yes, the evaluation, uh, you know, I'm sure later we'll, we'll be able to discuss the evaluation of ecosystems, but also climate financing and uh, various financing models that conservation is, uh, is needed are coming naturally to me. And it looks like I have even a better perspective than maybe my science colleagues. Uh, that sounds a bit arrogant, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm able to be confidently relate them uh, to, uh, to, my, to my background. And when we're looking at discussions like landscape, um, fine, conservation financing, uh, last week I was in a national dialogue that is talking about uh, how to get conservation financing into Ghana and into landscape. And these are discussions and conversations that I understand fully. And I contribute um, um, because of my understanding now of how conservation models work 
but also bringing on the financing bit, which may be lacking for maybe pure science people onto, you know, then, then uh, being meaningful and relevant to maybe any table on which the discussion is going. So, yes, it's really uh, help. And I'm sure that even if I was not in, I could have been mm. recruited, isn't it, as an expert, conservation finance expert, um, you know, on the team. But anyway, I'm in already. But it's really, it's relevant, yes. <laughs> it's quite heartening for, for me to hear. And I know Peter said this a couple of times, like, you know, we're neither of us are scientists, um, but it just goes to show that, you know, if we're going to take the climate crisis and this loss of biodiversity seriously, there needs to be people of all different skills who aren't necessarily, you know, it's not just necessarily for the scientists anymore. It's very inspiring, Seth. And it's interesting that you talked about your initial question or always asking about the church. And I think it's worth, perhaps you could explain a little bit in the Ghanaian context for some of our listeners who come from secular societies where it might not seem to matter very much whether the church does or doesn't care because the church is such a marginalized element of society. In the Ghanaian context, that's not true, is it? Uh, so can you just talk about the significance in your part of the world of the church grasping the importance of conservation? Yes, Peter, I think... Um is still a work in progress. Um, some, you know, progress, um, uh, uh, progress have been made uh, with our work in the church, uh, but there seemed not to be like how my questioning was coming from the church was all more about uh, the things in heaven and then the hope of heaven uh, one day um, and not anything here. But uh, I think we've had a successful um, engagement with the church. And now there are some action. We have church groups that are involved in um, some action, uh, conservation action, uh, some environmental action, uh, Christians in pr plastic uh, action. Uh, so there is um, a lot of understanding now um, and the church seeing the need to do something about uh, God's uh, creation. And what percentage of Ghanaians do you think would find themselves in church on a on a Sunday? What what's the sort of national footprint, if you like, of of the Christian church? I know there's a great variety of of churches, and but what what percentage of Ghanaians would would affiliate with a church? Do you think? All right, yes. So there's a, a spectrum from Pentecostal to um, Evangelical, or what we say Orthodox. Um, but generally, it's about um, 70% of Ghanaians actually um, identified as Christians. They will say we, we're Christian. And out of that, you can have, so out of the 70, you can have um, uh, 70 to 80% of that attending church every Sunday. I mean, church attendance is, is I mean, you show you're being a Christian by attending church. And uh, it, no matter how the agenda, going to church on Sunday morning, it's for Sunday morning. You wouldn't be anywhere. So you have a large number. So here you're talking about uh, about 60% of Ghanaians uh, being in church on every Sunday. So I guess that's scary and encouraging. It's scary because if the Christian church has it wrong about God's 
concern for his world, then everybody in the whole nation has a problem. But if the Christian church does begin to listen to what you're saying and see what you're doing, the potential is is enormous because those people will be on Monday morning, they'll be leading industries, they'll be running banks, they'll be fully engaged in, in Ghanaian society and it will make a difference, I imagine. No, exactly so, Peter. So, yes, we, you know, there's um, um, a huge opportunity, um, you know, to to get a church involved. And uh, yes, the church is made up of uh, people in influential places of which if the message gets through, you know, we take this on. And we've been, uh, we've been fortunate to have, let's say, the Christian council raising its voice with us on, on campaigns like Atiwa for us. And they wrote to the president and whoever, when the Christian council uh, writes to you, you take attention or you, you know, you take notice. And so, yes, there's a huge opportunity that as the church gets, um, you know, to do accept and then to uh, practice and take on creation care, um, we would turn around um, the mismanagement that we've had in our natural resource and, and on the environment. Can you tell us a bit about the Atiwa forest and the campaign that Arusha Ghana has run and also about, yeah, how you've been involving churches in that and whether that sort of really captured the imagination of, of Christians in, in Ghana? Okay, so <laughs> thank you, Bernie. So first of all, um, let me tell you a bit about Atiwa and why Atiwa is special. Um, so Atiwa is in the yeah, eastern region of, of Ghana. It's about 95 kilometers from the capital, Accra. Um, and Atiwa is, um, I think, 33% of the forest left in the eastern region, not in Ghana, but in the eastern region. So in terms of that region, uh, it's important. Uh, for a forest type, it's an upland evergreen uh, forest. It's, it was part of the Upper Guinean forest that used to run from across the sub-region, so from Senegal uh, through to uh, Benin and Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire. But they are, uh, they've all gone now, so the remnant, I think 5% of it, remains in Atiwa. Um, it's not a huge place for size. It's about um, 253 kilometers square, which is about 25,300 hectares, um, about 45 kilo, a kilometer long and uh, 12 kilometer um, its widest, covering an area of altitude, altitude of the range, ranging from about 230 meters to 845. So that's the elevation. And it is this uh, high elevation that supports the evergreen nature uh, of the place. Atiwa is uh, rich uh, in terms of biodiversity. For plant richness, we can talk about about 1,100 uh, species um, of, of uh, flora. And uh, that's about 26% of the entire Ghana uh, flora. Um, it has about 77% of Ghana's butterfly species, um, you know, about 573 individual species have been confirmed by studies. There is about 711 yet to 
to be confirmed or yet to, to occur. 30% of uh, Ghana's bird population have been recorded um, in Atiwa. Um, and out of over 100 species, of these are threatened or near threatened with extension. Actually, 20% of um, Ghana's threatened species are known to occur uh, in Atiwa forest. Um, there are other endemic species like the Atiwa dotted butterfly, uh, the Atiwa stripping frog. But despite uh, the, the wealth of understanding and the surveys that have been, there still remain even a lot that has not been discovered so we've, we've not fully discovered Atiwa. And then on top of this, Atiwa is a, a watershed, is a water tower. So three of Ghana's 16 big rivers take their source from Atiwa, helping with the major basins, what river basins that we have in Ghana that supplies water. In fact, Atiwa alone supplies water for 5 million Ghanaians. We're not a huge population. Uh, we just had our census. We estimate him to be about 30 million. So 5 million is a large proportion of Ghanaians having their water from Atiwa. And uh, the three rivers support other basins. So, um, you know, so the, the places uh, need to be, <laughs> to be protected. I mean, this justification for the biodiversity and the species themselves but also they support uh, Ghanaians. Um, and then if you talk about climate amelioration, you know, so the, the fact that it's one of the biggest carbon sink in Ghana, then Atiwa had to be protected. And Asana Rosha, um, you know, because the, you know, Atiwa was up for mining, uh, there was a, a decision, do we, do we just stand um, and stare? Um, it's nobody doing anything about it. And even though there are powerful forces involved, government involved, businesses, international businesses involved, we thought that we could raise uh, a voice or organize our constituency and, and uh, groups that are interested to raise a voice against this. And I think it was our our rights as, um, as Christians, um, as Ghanaians, and uh, you know, as, as the world, global world, to, to make sure that uh, this important biodiversity hotspot is protected. Specifically, uh, Seth, when you had that conviction, you realized there were powerful interests involved. One of the particular products that was being mined and considered for mining was bauxite. And that's immediately an international trade. Did you have a very strategic plan at the beginning as to what you were going to do about that conviction? Or has it been a case that the campaign, which has actually been, I would say, remarkably successful in a way, um, did it develop its own dynamic? Obviously, you've learned a lot as you've gone along, but did you start at the beginning with a a set of strategic priorities about how you're going to tackle something so massive? Because I think some of our listeners feel about environmental issues in general and maybe their own particular concerns a bit helpless in front of them and they feel the weight of those counter-interests. Okay. Um, I think uh, to this, we, we had uh, no clue as to... Um, 
you know, what, what to do. We didn't have any expertise. We had not gone that path before. I just remembered when we heard that uh, Atua had been given to a big uh, bauxite company, Bimentco. Um, I remember me asking my chairman, the board chairman, and putting a small delegation to go to Forestry Commission and say, you know, but we want to work there. We want to protect this, help you protect this place. And they're telling us, no, no, the government has given it out for mining. And we've come out of the chief executive's room and we were in the lobby and we said, what do we do? And uh, we said, okay, let's start. And then we, we just went there and start talking to communities and said, do you know that the forest is going to go? Uh, communities were at that time, you know, fed up with all the things that agency, government agencies and official agencies have been doing. So kind of they resigned to, they didn't care. We, we reminded them of the power they have with their voices and to be able to say no. Uh, but we ourselves didn't have any expertise. And that is how we started. And along the line, we, we realized, okay, we would need the knowledge. You know, of, you know, and then gradually support others came in. We learned, we made mistakes, uh, but we, you know, the focus was that uh, we need to let the whole world hear this. We need to invoke our own rights and uh, constitutional right, whatever it is in Ghana, to say that um, Atua should not, should not be mine. Can I ask you, a few minutes ago, you gave us some really helpful stats on Atiwa and, and why it's so important. When you hear that, I think anybody who listens to that would be compelled to say this forest must be protected, not only then what you said about it providing water to 5 million Ghanaians. Is bauxite mining still a threat? And if so, why haven't people understood how crucial the forest is? Like, where's the kind of communication gap there? Right. Okay. So, um, yes, even, even in, in, in Ghana, you know, sometimes we were, we were surprised by the level of, um, I wouldn't say awareness, but, you know, people have just resigned to, um, either because they think they don't have power to, uh, speak up to the authorities. We did a survey, a household survey, uh, because, um, a greater part of the capital's water um, is by a river called Dinsu, which takes its source from Atiwa. Uh, so we did a survey and we asked the question, do you know where your water comes from? And a lot of the answers we received, you know, you know and some are interesting. Some say, no, our water comes from government. Um, you know, so, you know, government gives water, you know, and so it's also kind of uh, shocking and, you know, the extent of even the awareness that people uh, had, you know, so we realized we had to intensify awareness. So th these are um, known, um, you know, the, the, the nature of the support and the quality and the things that are in there. But you see, um, government, it's interesting the way uh, governments operate, and especially our government and, and policy uh, makers uh, in Africa. The message is, is there, you know, some, and they sometimes know and understand, but you see, the they need for African government, you know, and they are confronted with having to raise 
you know, enough resources in money to meet all the developmental challenges. Um, we also know that uh, even the resources we have through avenues like corruption, we, we lose that. And also the kind of politics we have, very short cycle, election cycle, that uh, you need to show something. Usually, uh, there's a bit of short-termism in terms of you know, looking at development um, agenda. So anything that will give us money now is fine. And sometimes, even if it will sacrifice huge and important um, infrastructure and asset that is for the future of a whole nation, sometimes it's sad to say that, you know, policymakers and, you know, um, African governments, you know, and, uh, you know, and my government, you know, will not prioritize that as important. Um, yes, you, if you look at the, so, uh, the sustainable development goals, uh, goals seven, eight, and nine are very important to our contest in Africa. Uh, seven talks about affordable and clean energy, you know, so energies, you know, source of energy, getting enough energy for development. Eight talks about economic growth, decent work and economic growth. And nine talks about industry, innovation, infrastructure, you know, so this. But there are other parts, other greener parts that these can be achieved. We actually did a, um, a study for Atiwa, you know, economics of Atiwa, you know, where we looked at various scenarios of development for Atiwa. And obviously, over the long term, the green part of protection, Atiwa becoming a national park, developing in, uh, tourism infrastructure, and developing all the green economic opportunities around it, will give us better revenue in the long term than mining it for bauxite. And this is evidence that we engage government with. But you know what? It's, a, it's in the long term. They want something in the four-year four cycle that they can show. And if it is digging up the forest to take the, you know, the soil under, the bauxite under, and selling it now, um, they, they tend to tell towards that, which is, which is unfortunate. So it's also a very complex, complicated discussion where you need to convince policymakers and the government that, yes, this will give us some money now, you know, but it is not worth the long-term benefit, um, you know, f- to us as a, as a country. And uh, because if we mine Atua, there's going to be water stress in Ghana. How do we get politicians to factor this in, even in the planning now? They see it as in the future. All right. So um, you think that, okay, by just, as, you know, exposing, you know, the wealth and the value of Atua, People around will understand, but it is more complicated than that. So do you think that in in some way we've talked with another of our podcast guests, uh, with Deepa Senapati, who you know, about um, ecosystem services as a starting point sometimes for a discussion with politicians or policy makers. But do you think this short termism that you refer to is one of the issues that needs to be addressed if one is taking that initial approach in ecosystem services? And how do you think 
within the short term political cycle, one can make a an ecosystem services case. It it must be quite problematic. Yes, um, Peter, you you know that ecosystem services itself and its valuation um, is very controversial. Um, so you know, and I would talk a bit about it. Um, it's controversial because it's looking at at markets, you know, but see if you can put a value on 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 everything of nature, everything God has created. Um, so you're looking at it in market terms. So uh, that is one side of it that makes uh, you know ecosystem and evaluation sometimes problematic. However, it's maybe here it's helpful that it is also uh, one of the only means that you can communicate the essence of, let's say, uh, natural assets like Atiwa Forest to policymakers. It's difficult to convince them that Atiwa should be there for its own intrinsic value. They wouldn't, they wouldn't understand it because of the way we build our perception as if um, natural resources and uh, nature is there for only mankind's use. You know, so it's, it's, it's very problematic. So we have to go through the route of, yes, ecosystem services and, and showing and categorizing what that is bringing us as a benefit and why because of that it should be prioritized um, over, let's say, uh, minerals and, and mining. So we have to do this big study, which is the team study, the economics uh, of uh, biodiversity of Atiwa, which we call uh, at, you know, the economics of, of Atiwa. We have to do it uh, to put a value on all that they try to put a value on all that the forest is given. But, you know, the limitation is huge. How do you, how do you value the cultural assets of Atiwa? You know, Atiwa is very important for the Achim Abuyakwa traditional area. This is an ancient kingdom that has fought it battles in this forest. Atiwa is locally called Kwaebibrim. Kwaebibrim is translated as the, the dark forest uh, because of the denseness and because of, um, of the way it is closed canopy and all that. And that's where the uh, Achim Abuyakwa has fought their battles and they won every battle. You know, no, you know, no tribe defeated them because, you know, because of the, of that, the forest, uh, because they knew the forest and, um, you know, they were able to. And up till now, this forest is still is the backbone of the Achimabuyaka kingdom. In fact, the king is, is locally uh, called uh, which is translated as um, um, the, the, the dark forest king. You know, so the kingdom itself, the trust of the kingdom is based on this, on this, on this forest. How do you put a value on this? So, um, you know, so these are some of the, of, of, of the, of the limitation as if, as if nature is only good when it has a market value, when you, you can say it's worth this in, in, in money. Yeah. And there seems perhaps to be 
another issue, which is you talk about this intrinsic value or value, and it's obviously very clear within Christian thinking about the value of nature. Why does it matter? Because God made it. It's the work of his fingers and he gives it to us both for our care and our use. These are very clear things. But then it seems as though, again, on Monday morning, when Christians get into their professional workplace, that some switch is is flicked and and the kind of very pure monetary economics that only values things by monetary value and not those kind of cultural or other values that 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 one finds in a biblical mindset they 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 don't seem to come into play and perhaps there's do you think that is also a, an issue within Ghanaian, like so many other uh, national Christianities, if you like, that disconnect between the value we give our assent to on a Sunday and then the value we work with in our professional lives the rest of the week. No, no, it's a, it's um, it's a zali, uh, it's a zali true in this manner, and I do not see why this should have been a different conversation when we are in the church and accept that we need to protect God's creation. We need to protect nature. And then we, we come out and then we, we try to then also match this is important than the other because this is worth a lot more money. It shouldn't have been a, a different conversation, but that is the reality that you need to even draw people's attention. And we're talking of uh, Christians uh, that, um, you know, God's creation exists for their own purpose. And uh, it's not going to be determined by how much valuable it is to mankind. I've got um, one final question for you. That's all right. Um, I'm wondering, given everything that we've spoken about and the threats that you've you've seen towards Atiwa, how you remain hopeful for the future, um, particularly when, as you said, nature has been kind of such a low priority for our global economy. Yes, hope. Hmm. Yes. Um, now, if we look around, there are so much gloom uh, that bring a lot of discouragement. Um, but at the same time, uh, the numerous challenges that we see around, uh, being it in the landscapes that we work in, um, um, in terms of the one-term um, deforestation that we see um, in Ghana and in the sub-region um, and, and globally. Um, these challenges also tend to be a source of encouragement for us to do more. Um, you cannot stand by and not, and not uh, put in an effort when you see official DOM and agencies that are mandated with budget to do to protect um, you know, our natural resources and, and, and nature, you know, not doing anything. You, you, you want to do something. So we have, we have um, tried uh, you know, to not remain only at the community level, you know, but if we get to know that um, you have to engage policymakers to bring a change to those at the community level. We have tried to, to do that. We've been encouraged and we have the hope that the little that we do usually 
um, would, would bear fruit and it will lead to change. You know, so sometimes the challenges we see around are also our source of hope and encouragement. We've also seen in, especially in Ghana, but across Africa, also young people and useful youth, the youth in general, getting interested and asking questions about the protection of nature and of our environment. And it's so unprecedented. Youth, the young ones are getting involved. So we've intensified our school's program. We are engaging the youth. And most of the time they have questions which policymakers are not um, answering or are not able to answer. In fact, in Ghana, uh, for the past five months, six months, there have been a movement and a hashtag movement, Fix the Country, they, they call it. And uh, it's really taking on and uh, they going on the street. And you know what? One of the issues, they, because government asks them, police, what should we fix? They say everything. But, you know, you need to. And one of the issues on the Fix the Country agenda is Atiwa Forest. For, for government not to mine Atua Forest, it is one of their items on Fix the Country. And our president is on a tour in Europe now. He was in Germany three days ago. And we, we saw on TV he being uh, heckled by Ghanaians in Germany saying, Fix the Country, which implies don't mind Atiwa. You know, so this is something that is not even part of the campaign. But we see the youth asking why government want to mine a place like Atiwa. And that can only give us hope that there will be hope for, for the future. And, uh, and this is exciting and also gives us encouragement to do more even now. You, you've already done a, a huge amount and we, we've only scratched the surface of, of the engagement you've had right across the country and with so many communities. But I think our listeners would also like to know a bit, just to know that they can go and look at Atiwa for Eternity on YouTube, which was one of the, one of the creative things you did with taking all of those leading musicians into the forest and producing that music. So I'm not surprised you're getting a good engagement with young people. You've had university clubs, haven't you, running for, for well, what would it be? 15 years now, I imagine, at least. And, and that's, what's, that's been the breeding ground for your leadership and all sorts of work like that, hasn't it? So again, you, you say you've made mistakes, but you've, you've done an awful lot right, I think. And uh, we can all, we can all learn from that. Is the one thing that you're particularly proud of in all of these years, I wonder, that you'd like to end with? It's a bit like, you know, asking you what you would take to a desert island with you. It's the one thing that, you know, you're particularly glad about or one moment you can recall where you were specially encouraged. Well, it's, um, yeah, we've, and we, we're still doing, we're still small and, uh, you know, still learning to do a lot more. But yes, our engagement across the landscapes, um, at the moment we work from, uh, about four active landscapes across Ghana. Um, and that is um, re really cool um, with communities right from the savannah zone through forest zone to, um, uh, to the coast on marine issues. Uh, but I think one thing 
you know, sometimes um, you know, it's you feel a bit proud about is the kind of uh, people that we have that have come through our system, um, either through the university clubs and the school clubs. So sometimes you walk to an office, um, and then the, you know, and and it's an Arusha member many years ago, uh, you know, who is working in in uh, conservation with another organization. And then they say, no, we know you because you are Russia. Um, and um, recently we got contacted by a donor in Netherlands. Um, you know, not, we've not applied for money. It's a small grant uh, foundation. And they've received a lot of application from small organizations in, uh, in Ghana. And it looks like every one of them had referred to us as other, you know, they started from us or they came out of us or they've been encouraged by Arusha Ghana or had done some work with Arusha Ghana. So what the donor was doing is that, can you confirm this? If, if, is it true that this group has worked with you? Is it true that this group, you know, came out of you or was set up by, you know, so that can be humbling when you'd, you'd see that the little effort that we are doing is really uh, giving back to many uh, institutions and organizations. So here you can see that this is not even what Russia is doing, but there have been offshoots of other interactions or our training with other, other individuals who have set up even organizations that are doing conservation work in Ghana. So this is also gives us hope. Very, very hopeful. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the Field Notes podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and subscribe. And there's more information about this podcast and about Arosha at arosha.org. So do join us next time. Thank you.